Hi everyone, welcome to Two Bald Guys Talking Safety. I'm Langdon DeMint. And I'm Julian Taylor. And welcome to our podcast. Welcome everyone to Two Bald Guys Talking Safety. I'm Langdon DeMint here with my fellow slightly bald friend who hasn't shaved recently, Jules. How are you, Jules? I am good, Langdon. I'm, I think I'm getting ready for, for my monthly haircut. Um, yeah, but no, all good. Um, busy old day. We've, we've got lots of lots of things happening. Um, few few guests coming up. So um, yeah, bald guys are bald guys are keeping busy. Bald guys are keeping busy. That's good. Here we've, as this recording has taken place, we've just had our Fourth uh, of July. So not only am I bald, I'm a little tired. Fourth of July being on a Tuesday is yeah. All fingers are here. <laughs> Todd is showing us our, our guest is showing fingers. That's a very pertinent thing during the 4th of July. A lot of videos have been uh, going around this year. I feel like even more than usual about some typical, maybe Americana fun. I don't want to be negative, but anyway, some firework incidents, but everything is good here. But I would like to, to thank, we have a guest, everyone. That's Mr. Todd Hone, who I've known for a number of years. He, I will say he gave me my first health and safety job as an intern. And then he loved me so much those two and a half months. He hired me right away, right after I graduated with my master's. But um, I won't give much introduction. I'll let him do that. Uh, Todd, how are you, buddy? I'm good, Langdon. Thank you. Uh, and and I will say, Langdon, it was a good hire. So I didn't have to, I didn't have any qualms about uh, making the move. So appreciate uh you know, the opportunity to continue to be engaged with you and meeting Julian. Um, you know, just give you a little background on myself. Um, so I've been in workplace health and safety uh, for better than a little over 30 years um, and uh, ha have a, a diverse background, started in insurance and risk management, um, moved into software, uh, moved into uh, a nonprofit role advocating for workplace health and safety. Um, and then the last few years um, been focused on kind of what I call the other side of the house, and that's focusing on actually applications. So I moved into the utility space um, and uh, have been over here for, for a number of years. Um, just a couple other nuggets I think that would be beneficial as we think about the conversation today um, and we're talking about serious injury and fatality prevention is kind of just my perspective but on both sides right so both on the consulting side uh, helping organizations stand these processes up but then also on the implementation side and working with leadership around that and where I really uh, started this journey was probably back in 2000 nine or 10, so a dozen years or so. Um, I do a two-day workshop for senior leaders related to SIF prevention, and I'll call it SIF just for the benefit of the discussion today. Uh, and then I also host a serious injury fatality roundtable. Uh, I've been doing that for the last seven years. It's comprised of about a dozen groups, a dozen companies, uh, leaders in those organizations responsible for SIF prevention. So it's really application-based. And so sharing opportunity in a community for us to understand what's working, what's not working. And that's a, a diverse group you know, comprised of utilities, uh, space uh, companies, uh, construction, 
pharmaceutical, which is interesting because they're using it more on the manufacturing side. Uh, even though we think about traditional SIF as being workplace uh, fatalities and serious injuries, uh, but what we're ultimately talking about is operational learning, and so they're applying it on the on the uh, manufacturing side. And then we have heavy industrial and manufacturing. So um, what I'm going to talk about today is just really the the opportunities and you know kind of current challenges and and you know what's working, what's not working. So um, thank you, Langdon. Maybe more than what you were looking for, but uh, we'll knock no, that out. Not at all. <clears throat> I, see, I know you well enough that I, I thought about giving a little quick intro and I was like, you know what? He's going to be able to do it better. Let's just give it to him. And I think that's great because, you know, it's something I remember us talking about years ago. When you look at it, it still really has. You think about from an incident rate to just your basic injuries, we, you know, 20 years, we've really done good and we've dropped, but we've plateaued. Um, but then the fatalities happened and we had COVID, which skewed a couple of years. I mean, it, to me, it really showed the the lack of focus on the health aspect, which I think was honestly, hopefully in the end game, that, that will be positive and will turn around. But I wonder what your thoughts are when we think about that SIFS as a whole and that potential, how people are focusing. What do you think right now for the state of SIF prevention, the focus on SIF, the focus on fatalities. Do you see all organizations really, I guess, what is the current state? Does it change from small business to the enterprise-wide, countrywide, or do you think it's still kind of Wild West-ish? I, I think it runs the gamut. And, and I think what it comes down to is what type of industry are you in, right? So those industries that uh, do high-risk work, are certainly more interested in preventing workplace fatalities, regardless of size, right? And I think that's that doesn't change. And I think what else is happening um, is just the emphasis around this topic. You know, so it, it comes from the the foundation of preventing workplace fatalities or the potential for so potential uh, for those types of injuries. But if you go back to your comment related to plateauing of your performance, right, your total recordable incident rate or your, your safety performance, you know, we've seen that plateau, right, to your point, And we've seen these workplace fatalities go up. But regardless of kind of the workplace fatality side of this and regardless of kind of what industry you're in, that plateauing, I think, is causing people to rethink what we've done. And so there's a journey happening, a movement happening, if you will related to this topic of SIF prevention, but I think it, 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 it's much broader in terms of the opportunity for organizations. That's where I go back to the learning side of this, right? So when our total recordable incident rate in the United States was 9.0 back in like 1992, I think is when that, that was there. Uh, and today it's 2.7, um, kind of the national average. There was a lot of learning that was happening, right? So we were finding things, we were fixing things, and that's kind of where we're at today, right? The, the, the ability to learn and improve is diminished. And so by introducing not necessarily SIF prevention, but the concepts that are foundational to SIF prevention, like the human organizational performance tools, uh, the aspect of uh, the new view and things that come with that, allow safety professionals to think and act differently related to how they improve within their organizations. And so if you think about that journey and you think about that 9.0 to 2.7 today, 
you know, we started out at the foundation of really kind of compliance based or rules based, right? Follow the rules. If you want to work here, that's what you're going to do. Wear your safety glasses. And that was really, really important to help us get better. And then we saw an opportunity related to the aspect of design, standardization of systems, human factors, behavior-based safety. And then we saw some improvements there. But all of those aspects were really focused at the worker. And so what we have an opportunity here to do and where I see safety professionals across the board and see the opportunity for them, regardless of what industry they're in, is how do I learn and how do I improve? And so it's important to start to think and embrace these things um, so that we can drive that problem uh, or address those issues that are happening in our organization. And what that requires us to do is really move to kind of what this movement is about, right? This third phase of operational learning, uh, which I call operational learning. Some will call it new views. Some will call it human organization performance. But foundationally, it's based in the human performance tools that were created, you know, back years ago by INPO that have evolved to be focused more on organization. And what they're doing today and the opportunity for all of us is to think about system and process improvements that are focused on the what versus the who, right? Our opportunities to fix employees uh, is pretty much diminished, right? We're at the kind of the extent of what we can achieve related to that. More importantly, um, if you think about the injuries you're having today is what learning comes from that, right? It's, it's, you probably have addressed all the safeguards or the controls associated with that. And so you need to expand that horizon in order to figure out what are the things that I'm missing or the organization is missing that we can start to address. And I think that's where that opportunity, you know, really broadens the spectrum um, for organizations beyond just SIP prevention. Uh, you know what? I wonder, no, that's good because it's one of those. So, and Todd's taken part in, he's, we've set up an advisory group here with some EHS professionals and he's one of them. And to me, a lot of this, and I actually was just thinking about this. It's interesting as the workplace is changing so much and with people and the younger generation, and then the focus that, you know, we, we talked about the wellness aspect, for example, a few years ago, how to, and I think that's still very pertinent, mental health and all that. Do, do you think that's, I'm slightly going off a little bit here, but do you think that will help to play a role in this with, with that focus? Because really so much of that, if you look at it, can tie back to this, meaning if I'm not prepared to do the job as as safe as possible, as healthy as possible, will that could that correlate to what, what I do on the job? Just knowing that the younger generation, they care more about that mental health side. Not saying the older didn't, but I think it was overlooked a lot of times. Yeah, I think this goes back to Langdon, you know, work impacts health and health impacts work. And so when you start to think about the context of an event, not the consequences, right? But you think about the con the the context you start to uncover other factors that contributed to that, right? So what were the environment? What were the conditions? What was the mindset of that individual, or that work group performing that work? And so you start to branch into some of those things. You also, we know from the data and the work that you and I uh, did research around that um, there's an increased likelihood of being injured uh, related to the 
to the health and conditions of the worker. But I think it, it, it goes much broader here in terms of kind of these opportunities. But I think fundamentally, um, and, and I think this is important, and this is going back to the pharma example and the CIF roundtable, is how do you address these things in your organization, right? So the same approach related to controls, safeguards, layers of protection, they apply across all facets of a business. They're not just limited to workplace health or safety. And so to solve the issue of the health component, you need to better understand your population, right? So I can't look at individuals, but I can look at groups of populations. And I can engage with workers through this concept called learning teams, which may, many of your viewers probably have heard about before, but just kind of understand what are the barriers or, or what prevents them from accessing the solutions that organization has available to them. And then how do we design better solutions for those organizations or those workers, I should say, to address those issues. So there, there's some correlation there, um, but uh, I think the way you fix it is fundamentally very similar to how you would address the potentials. It's interesting. I was just think, thinking as I was listening to you there, Todd, we, we had a guy called Jason Anker came and talked at an event that we did and Jason's in a wheelchair. Jason fell off the roof of a house that he was working on. And one of the key things that he talked about was actually his his mental mindset coming into the workplace was wrong because he got he was going through a divorce, he was having trouble at home, and actually that was one of the biggest factors that led to his incident because he wasn't focused on what he was doing. Um, so again, it's I'm interested in your thoughts in terms of sort of how do we start to address that sort of well-being outside of the workplace that could affect the workplace. Yeah, I think it's it, it's it's challenging, Julian, and I think that story is very powerful. But I think it comes back to the first principle of human performance, or at least in the human organizational performance. And that is that the fact that mistakes are normal, right? We're human, we're gonna make mistakes. And so we need to build systems and processes that can account for those mistakes to occur and people to fail safely, right? And so what this comes back to is the aspects of controls, right? And the layers of those controls. And I think your viewership is very familiar with the hierarchy of controls and there's there's varying levels of controls. And what we have to think about as we think about these serious injury fatality or potential for is understand that mistakes are going to happen, whatever the underlying condition is that's going to lead to that mistake. And then how do we more importantly build the system so that when those mistakes happen, our system is resilient, we can account for it. And in this situation, you know, we might have a broken leg or a broken arm, but we don't have someone in a wheelchair. So this aspect of resilience and recoverability and failing safely takes on a different perspective when you think about the controls, right? We're not going to be able to eliminate or engineer out 100% of the control or the exposure or the risk, but we can put layers in place and we can validate and verify before the work begins that they're there. And then that helps ensure the outcomes that we want to achieve and recognizing that a broken leg or a broken arm is much better than a, than a, um, a paraplegic, a quadriplegic or someone that's, you know, not coming home today. Right. So that's an example. I, mean, I suppose the, the other thing that's going through my head as you're talking about that, we've, it's funny because we've just done a webinar for an organization in the UK 
and and we've talked about exactly this thing we talked about the importance of failing safely um but also exactly what you've said i think it's really important this whole concept of we're all human we will make mistakes things will go wrong um how how do you sort of get leadership to react in the right way when things do go wrong well it's one conversation at a time julian um it's not there's no magic bullet for any of this, right? This is where back to the aspect of a journey. Um, and I think it's an opportunity to engage with leadership, to help them understand that these conditions that exist in our organization run across the gamut, right? Our best people fail and they fail regularly. And so one of the things that I do is really establish that failure component regardless of what group I'm talking about. And really what I try to drive towards is, do we have perfect people? Do we have perfect processes, assets, procedures? And if you can get to kind of a normalization there, which the answer always is, no, we don't, then how do we prepare for that? How do we build the resiliency into our system? Uh, and then that leads to other conversations around how do you create psychological safety? How do you create leadership response that matters? How do you develop learning? Um, but fundamentally, you got to get to that aspect of mistakes are normal. Our best people make mistakes. And that when you think about blame is usually the response we typically have from a leadership perspective. How has that resulted in improvement? But more importantly, when you blame, what have you actually fixed? Because if I can replace Todd with Julian and the same exact thing can happen, we haven't fixed anything. And so it's, it's getting, you know, everybody understanding kind of those concepts, but then more importantly, reinforcing that with the actions that you take and how you do event reviews and other things, but how you actually um, um, act on this and those individual conversations. Because to be quite honest with you, <laughs> safety professionals, you know, we've been harping on the Heinrich model, right? Um, um, and talking about, you know, we can prevent serious injuries if we focus on this. Uh, and I didn't confuse Heinrich and hierarchy before. I hope I didn't. But the Heinrich model really sets us up for failure from a safety perspective, right? Because that's what we've been touting. And then when we think about, and I was teaching a workshop, uh, I want to say back in February down in Florida. And there was an individual in the workshop, um, and he's a senior safety person works in high risk industry, um, probably been doing for 25 plus years. And he said that, you know, you know, asked why people were here. And one of the things that he referenced was, um, you know, my goal, my job is to, you know, work myself out of a job. And I was thinking to myself, wow, um, we still have a long ways to go if we think that that's feasible or possible. Because, if we think about the things that need to change in organizations today, I would argue that we've done the easy stuff, right? The compliance and rules-based is relatively easy, right? You wear your safety glasses, Julian, or you don't work here. We can design some things. We can standardize some things. We can do behavior-based safety and demonstrate that we have 98% compliance, but it doesn't get to the really operational issues or the organizational issues and really the system processes that are contributing to where I thought what I was doing was safe, but in reality, it created 
an outcome that I wasn't expecting. And so I've yet to meet anybody that goes to work that expects to get hurt or wants to get hurt, right? Those people don't exist, at least the people I engage with. And so we have to fundamentally think and act differently around that. So, you know, where this draws us to, and I think this gets to your answer, is as safety professionals, it's very difficult to step outside of what I've been espousing or what I've been telling people. Because essentially what I'm going to be telling you, Mr. Mr. and Mrs. CEO or COO, is that I've been telling you the wrong things, right? And so we get back to the aspect of this isn't changing what we're doing. It's building on the foundation of things that we've created, right? Those don't go away. They're really, really important. But think about this next phase of our journey as an additive, not replacing, journey. And so you can start to broach some of these conversations in a different way, but just fundamentally understand they're, what they're hearing is something completely different than what you've been telling them for the last you know X amount of years that you've been working there. So um, our leadership wants to do the right things, but there's going to be some barriers and challenges as you start to introduce these concepts and start to change the conversation because they're going to want to go back to what they know and they're going to want to really challenge you around, well, you said this before, now you're saying this. And so we have to be prepared for that. Do you, uh, and what, what you just said, I think is really important. And I, I've got to think part of the frame of your round table hit on it, uh, making an assumption here. And that is the, the people the organizations in the round table, they're pretty progressive from, from this standpoint. Are there some key things that you saw that they did as their own safety leaders there or others that help get more people engaged in this topic and in the improvement of maybe it's, it's just that refocusing of SIFs. And the reason I'm I'm asking that I'm wondering what are, and maybe it's just the basic, what are some fundamental things that they can do? What are better opportunities? But I'm I'm wondering, you have those, what I would probably say is better of the best or best of the best. What, what can others do to, to get to that because of what you just said, I think, and that's a good point. I, we're telling them, Hey, what I've been doing is kind of wrong. <laughs> yeah. I think I, I, it's an interesting question, Langdon and, and they're, just like there's not one way to do just about anything we do in safety, there are a lot of different ways um, to address this within organizations. And I'm going to kind of take it this in two parts, if you allow me. Um, you know, fundamentally, um, you know, what's the burning platform, right? Typically, it comes down to either high risk work or we've had some events. And a lot of times organizations don't even know because they don't classify events as SIF or SIF potential that these things are occurring. And so I think part of your job as a safety professional is re really just to do that under analysis and, and create that understanding, right? So how are we measuring things today? And are these even on our radar screen? Because what we tend to go to is the worst outcome. And that creates your immediate burning platform, right? That's pretty easy. That doesn't result in success. So just fundamentally, a bad event doesn't equate to a success, right? Because the way you get there is a lot different in each organization. So um, 
from the the SIP roundtable group, yes, they're really, really good at what they do. Um, and I would classify them the best of the best. Um, but again, each of those organizations' journey was a little bit different. But fundamentally, you need someone that champions it in the organization, and you need senior leadership buy-in and support. So you got to create those two in order to have the outcome you want to achieve. But let me take kind of the second part of this, which I think is really, really important to this conversation. And that's really defining what are the opportunities or you can call them problems or whatever that looks like. And, and where I go to is a phrase that you probably heard me mention many times, Langdon, this perfect storm. And this perfect storm is there's a lot of things that are happening that are all coming together. And any one of those could be your burning platform in the organization. Um, but when you put them all together, it becomes this perfect storm. And so if you don't know perfect storm, Google it. You can, you can, there's a movie about it. It'll give you analysis, right? Um, but the idea here is this is my perfect storm when I'm talking to, to leaders, uh, senior safety people. And these are really the outcomes from what we're seeing in the SIF roundtable. Um, so first one is, is, is complex and it really was accelerated during the pandemic. Uh, and I think it's playing out even more today, especially in those organizations with high risk work. So I, you look at the three legs of a stool, there's three legs of this, this problem, at least in the first part of this. Um, you have dynamic high risk work, right? So if you have that as one of your stool legs, you got, you got, a, you got an opportunity here. The second thing is um, because of the pandemic and all the things that that created related to supply chain, you have a you have high production pressures, right? Materials weren't available. You may have had funding, but you can't solve for the problem because you didn't have the materials. And so all of these things that may have become normal maintenance are now accelerated into kind of we need to fix this or a bigger problem is going to happen. So high production pressures are the second leg of that stool. The third one, which is again compounded by the pandemic, was this aspect of a high volume um, and, and low resource availability, right? So we talk a lot about the great resignation, but Langdon, I don't know if you remember this slide. We built this back at, at, at the organization you and I were both part of, but we identified back in 2010 12, I believe, or 2010, that by the year 2020, the population of 55 and older in the United States was only going to grow by 5%. The population that was uh, 18 to 22 was going to increase by, you know, 50 or 60%. So we label this as the great resignation, but in reality, this was going to happen. Like there's a high percentage of our population that's ready to retire. And that creates other problems, you know, with institutional knowledge walking out. But that's kind of the first problem. That's our environment, right? If you think about what, what are the problems. The second one, we got into this early in this conversation, and that's this um, plateauing of our performance, our safety incident rates, our total recordable incident rates, and severity, fatalities increasing. So that's really been happening for the last, you know, seven, eight years. And it, it continues to widen. And I think... There's a lot of emphasis and discussion related to this journey on SIP prevention, but I would ask people out there to be, really be careful about what's out there. So you can go Google serious injury fatality prevention, and you'll find thousands of organizations. And a lot of them have relabeled what they were doing before or changed the nomenclature, 
to accommodate and adjust to SIP prevention. What I will tell you from experience, and I walked into an organization where this was the case, is those things don't translate. And so be very careful related to that process. So again, number two is the plateauing of incident rates, increasing uh, severity, SIFs, fatalities, uh, and lack of learning associated with that, right? Fewer events to learn from. The third one, which contradicts my previous comment related to a lot of resources out there. There is a lot of emphasis around these today. And there are some organizations that are doing a really, really good job um, helping to try to understand and define serious injuries and fatalities. Um, the problem is that eats up your resources, right? And so at the out, what I focus on is what's the outcome, right? Is an outcome a SIF or a SIF potential and focus there? But we can spend a lot of time trying to define what a SIF is to help our leaders understand. And what I would just challenge um, safety professionals is pick one. And the one I go to is EEI Edison Electric Institute. That's the simplest one. Uh, it's out there. It's pretty easy to understand. And, you know, and then I would put a team around that to really define um, any event if it falls in that category. Narrow that team that's doing that analysis. So that's number three. Number four here is our event review process, which we don't call investigations anymore, have to evolve, right? And so if you're still focused on fixing the who, you're going to fail. Uh, you need to start to evolve that to what are you fixing? Uh, and you need to get rid of this terminology called root cause. That foundationally is creating a challenge for us from an organizational perspective because we think there's one thing we can fix. In reality, there are a lot of latent conditions that are existing within our workplaces, and those all have the opportunity to be fixed if we can understand, and that's really the purpose of an event review is to understand what happened and our corrective actions fix those things. Um, but the idea is if we understand all of those conditions through causal analysis and other techniques, we can start to provide better resiliency, better controls, better safeguards, better layers of protection for our organization. So our event review process needs to evolve. So that's really number four. Number five, and this is where we're spending a lot of time in our roundtable talking about is where our focus is today. And that's around this aspect of our pre-job briefs um, and the emphasis around trying to get those right. And the problem with that I see with pre-job briefs is, and there's this term called critical controls that's utilized a lot, um, is the current process does not couple your hazard with your control, right? So we're asking people to do a review, identify the hazards. And then we're asking them to identify the controls. And what that creates is a very brittle system because there's three safety professionals on this. And hopefully, you know, a lot of people are reviewing this. Our, our analysis, our exercise involving careful judgment, which is how you define critical, is going to be different for every individual, right? So it's not going to be consistent. There's going to be a lot of noise in that. And if you move down to craft worker, they know the work better than you and I do. But even within that, there's going to be a lot of noise. And the second part of that is because controls aren't coupled together. We assume through that process, we're going to be identifying the right controls, the right amount of controls, and the robustness of those controls. And so I think there's a, a step back that we have to take that that current process, which has served us very well, and which a lot of organizations are really putting a lot of emphasis in, isn't really different than what we did before. 
I can create a SIF checklist relatively easy. That's not hard to do. But the reality is it gets to generalization of the process. I'm working at heights. What are the controls that I would have working at heights? Right. So I need, you know, fall protection system. I need anchorage. I need the, you know, you can start to list these things. But how many of those are really in the control of the worker all the time, especially when we get down to anchorage systems, right? And so those may have to be designed or have to be present before the work begins. So that's number five, if you're keeping track. Number six here is we don't couple, um, actually, we need to shift the focus from the hazard level to the task level. And this is where that emphasis and work around SIP prevention becomes very, very difficult and really, really hard. Because at the hazard level, back to creating a SIF checklist, that's easy. I can create a SIF checklist. Um, I was working with an organization a dozen years ago that has spent millions of dollars with a third party to build SIF checklists. Their number of SIF outcomes didn't change. And you know their number one finding on their SIF checklist? Checklist was personal protective equipment. Now, I'm not devaluing the importance of personal protective equipment in the aspect of safety, but in the aspect of SIP prevention, is that is that the most important thing? And so that's where to think about these things at a task level. And when you start to break it down to a task level, that requires you to get in the trenches with the people that are doing the work, the craft workers, to understand what are those fundamental things that we have to do? How does this exposure or this hazard purvey across the work that I do, and then start to design specific controls associated with that. And so now you can start to couple these things together. That first project might take four or five months. And as we know back from our leadership discussions, they want immediacy, right? They want to change this tomorrow. And so that's part of the safety profession and the role that we play is to make sure that we're driving that conversation and helping them understand that, yeah, we can put something in place tomorrow, but is it really going to change the outcome? And so how are we changing these things systematically? Uh, so we result in systemic changes that result in a resiliency and recoverability we want to have. So number six is the hazard and the task piece. Task is really hard. Hazard is really easy. And that's where most people are focused is at the hazard level. You know, a lot of people, utility workers, and I'll just use Lyman as an example, don't fall off poles today. The reality is they fall every day. They just don't hit the ground because of the systems they have in place. So that's a task-specific solution that was identified. In some areas, we've done really good work in this area, but other opportunities exist, and that's where we need to expand it. And the last one here is really capacity, and capacity takes on two meanings. And so, Julian, you brought up the conversation earlier about leadership, and I think it's I want to go back to that real quickly here. The aspect of leadership is really important um, when we think about capacity. And this is where we have to change, again, conversation by conversation, one at a time, to help people understand that our focus and attention on high-frequency, low-consequence events, which are usually our TRIR events, our recordable events, while they're important, but when you're hovering around a 1 or a 2.0, what's our opportunity to learn and improve? Because if we've been doing this a long time, we've probably put the right controls in place. And so it comes down to something else. And so our capacity to shift the focus to focusing on the other six items I talked about has to be 
reimagined and shifted to focusing on those aspects of creating resiliency. Prevention is really important. I think we've done that work when we think about the rules-based and the design-based kind of journey we've been on. But now we need to focus on the resiliency-based aspect of our business. And that's where that opportunity comes in by creating that capacity. Last time I checked, we're not getting any more resources. But if I can shift my focus to the things that really matter and impact the outcomes, that's our opportunity. And the second meaning of capacity goes back to the comment, Julian, you made earlier about failing safety, right? I think you guys did a a pod on this earlier on failing safety. And the reality there is, is those layers of controls, the robustness of those controls, um, the effectiveness of those, right, that creates an environment to fail safely. So capacity here takes on a couple of meanings and really, really important. So to sum this up, Langdon, that's our conversations, right? Um, with the kind of the focus today being around the pre-job brief um, as that needs to evolve if we're going to address the issue. So maybe a little long-winded, but I think I wanted to give you kind of that perspective. Hey, everyone. Really appreciate you tuning into this episode of Two Bald Guys Talking Safety. Please follow and subscribe to wherever you stream your favorite podcast or visit us at evotix.com. And if you want to see how follically challenged we really are, come and check us out on YouTube. If you've got value from the podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts and in the review section of this podcast, if you could leave us a review or a rating, that would be great. And as always, everyone, while you're going about your days and about your normal lives, stay safe out there and watch each other's back. <laughs>